good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community, while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. On today's program, we'll put a spotlight on the Chicago-based band Man Wolves. The hard-to-define ensemble is entering a new phase as it prepares to play a big summer festival. The dueling critics Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel will join me to talk about a new production that highlights Sister Rosetta Tharp's relationship with protege Marie Knight. Later in the show, I'll check in with a program director at the Donnelly Foundation to learn more about the challenges small arts organizations are still navigating in the aftermath of the pandemic pause, and we'll look back at the life and career of Tony Bennett. All that's coming up. Thanks for tuning in for some arts and culture this morning. This is Sunday Morning, a song from the Chicago-based band Manwolves. The five-piece ensemble dropped its third studio album, titled Third Dog, this past spring. It represents the next chapter for a band that formed while all the members were students at Evanston Township High School back in 2014. With the exception of the pandemic pause, Manwolves has tirelessly performed live over the past nine years, winning over a loyal fan base that's drawn to the band's eclectic influences. We are more willing to branch into other genres at other points. We've never had a good name for it. We've just been calling ourselves dog rock at this point. <laughs> yeah, it's so much easier to be like, well, it's like this, and it's like this, and it's also like this. So we stick to, we stick to dog rock now. This is Jamie McNear, the frontman and vocalist for Manwolves. I recently caught up with him ahead of the band's headlining performance at this year's Wicker Park Fest, which takes place Friday, July 28th through Sunday the 30th. We talked about the band's evolution over the years. You and, and the guys in Manwolves uh, all went to the same high school? High school, middle school, too. Okay. We've known each other for a while, and we've been playing music together for a while. Always been friends around early high school. This producer, Jim Tulio, who lives in my neighborhood, he kind of let us practice over there and he helped mentor us and we started taking it a little bit more serious. And then after a couple of years of messing around, we figured out that, hey, you know, might as well do this seriously. We became who we are today. It was a musical connection among the, the group of guys that ended up becoming part of the band. Like, did you all like the same type of music? We were mostly just friends to start off. Like, we liked the same music, yeah, for sure. But it was more, the name comes from we were in, on a dodgeball team together in, in middle school. And that's like the name that stuck. That's why we're called Man Wolves. That was the name of the dodgeball team at Nichols Middle School that we went to. We all wanted to play music, so it just worked out perfectly. Real good mesh. Did I read something about uh, an American werewolf in, in London? Yeah, there was there was some. Yeah, I my mom doesn't like that story because she <laughs> she uh, she forgot about it now, so she questions it. But uh, when I was younger, watched that movie and it freaked me out. I remember my mom saying that word, and then years later, started the dodgeball team. We needed a name, chose that, and then. When we started a band, we needed a name, and, you know, it's funny how things kind of evolve right. and move on. 
While McNear is out front as the group's lead singer, the band's creative process has always been pretty democratic. Nobody really took charge. It was a Three Musketeers-esque deal where everybody was all in for it and everyone's different music tastes kind of blended into this melting pot that was the band and nobody was really directing it to be one way. We all just kind of played how we felt and ended up being what what it is today. Is there a, a moment or maybe like a period of time where it started to become clear like, oh, this is something that could be more? Yeah, when we were in late high school, that uh, Jim Tulio, the producer that we were working with, he was like, you guys are good. You guys are real good. And you should really take this seriously. And that was when we were like, yeah, this is fun. You know what I mean? Like, who doesn't have fun making music and playing music? That was when we started taking it seriously. I think what solidified it for me was we decided not to go to college. It was like getting out of high school. And it's like, nah, like, this is this is what we're going to do. And that was when it was like, okay, this is something. And are you like at that point playing local gigs and, and things like that? Yeah, we were playing. I don't know if they still do rock shows or, or, or anything like that, but main stage up on uh, in Chicago right by J.B. Yeah. Alberta's, if you know where that is. It's like a magic theater now. Yeah, yeah. kind of crazy, right? Yeah. That was like some of our first gigs were over there. Oh, okay. And then, of course, Martyrs. We were playing Martyrs and like Shuba's Subterranean. Shout out Wicker Park Fest. <laughs> you know. Yeah, main stage. That's where my now wife and I had our third date ever. Really? A Talking Heads cover band. Huh? Oh, nice. Like a good cigarette, killing me slowly, but right now you know that I'm loving it. Belly together, oh man, we really struggling. Filling my void up, damn, I'm really a man. In addition to performing all over Chicago, Man Wolves was able to reach new fans by consistently releasing new songs online. The music industry was changing so heavily you know that was around the time when self-released artists and internet heavy releases and less so about buying physical copies of things you know so it was we were focusing more on releasing just singles nonstop on the internet like on streaming platforms it used to be a joke that we would never release our first album we uh, ended up with our first project, Safety Meeting, which turns five years old in September. These advancements in technology were great for creatives to get their stuff out there. There's like no no barriers anymore. You could, if, you may, if you were a local band, you could just record it and put it out there. But then on the flip side, it feels like then there's just like so much, like everyone's just putting stuff out there. So getting your stuff heard, was that something that, that came up as a challenge or did it just naturally your music found an audience i think a little bit of both you will always hear that it's being an independent artist is challenging we were kind of like yeah 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 like i yeah i bet i bet and it is it's challenging you got it you got it there is a lot of work that needs to be put into it that you might not realize right away but in the beginning we were kind of just doing it we were trying to just make me like good music playing shows and there was a kind of natural growth to it and it was when the blog era of music wasn't fully done yet so we were tight with all of the 
all of the Chicago blogs, music blogs, you know, just by being in the scene. So it was a nice time for Chicago music. Let's take a beat here and listen to some Man Wolves. Dealer's Choice, what should we listen to? Well, a fan favorite and one that usually gets new fans is uh, our song Reaper. This is Man Wolves Reaper. just tuning in you're listening to the arts section i'm gary zydek i'm in studio with jamie mcnear one of the members of chicago-based man wolves they're playing wicker park fest on sunday july 30th we're going to talk about that coming up well, we just heard one of their songs reaper and so this is off that project you were talking about earlier like your first real album first real album turns five years in september yeah the lead single reaper still people very thoroughly enjoy it just came off of tour and getting people coming up to us and saying my favorite song is this my favorite song is that and it's coming coming off of that tape it's it's nice it's a nice feeling 
I was going to ask what it's like when you're just starting out and you start to get attention. I'm sure that's euphoric. All of a sudden people like are interested in what you're doing. And now here you are several years later and you, you see like the same faces that has to be like exciting to know you have fans that will come just to see you. Yeah, it's crazy. It is really crazy. It's nice to know that people really enjoy the music. We've been seeing a lot of people getting like tattoos of the artwork uh, on them, which is blows my mind away and great artwork too by cam collins that we've always worked with he's a phenomenal artist and people get his work album artwork tattooed on them and it's kind of surreal it's like that's hardcore it's hardcore (laughs) (laughs) but just like in a general sense how would you describe the, the chicago indie music scene i think blossoming right now i i think i mean obviously there was a little bit of a lull but uh chicago is a music city it really is let it be house or blues, you know, to like rock and roll and hip hop. It's always something's going on in this city, which is so nice. And so the indie scene is like so many bands are coming up, so many like solo acts, so many just musicians in general. And it feels like it's not hard to see a good show. And uh, we're expecting big crowds at Wicker Park Fest this next weekend. Have you ever played this festival before? Yes, I believe so. I think we played it a couple years back. We weren't headlining, but I, I believe we played it a couple years back. It was a blast. I've always gone also, just enjoying it too, just showing up and having a good time. It's always a great time to go. You know, yeah. good food, good people, good music. You might want to be modest, but it has to feel cool to, to see your band's name in, in big letters on the on the poster. Yeah, I, I'm not going to lie. We've been driving past, you know, walking around, driving past and seeing the buses, you know, with yeah. the Wicker Park Fest advertisements on it. I'm always like, you see that? It, who's on? <laughs> you know, trying, to, trying to snap a photo of it, you know. Start talking to strangers. She'd be like, oh, I heard so good you, things uh, about manuals. Yeah, yeah. You see that bus? <laughs> You gonna go to Wicker Park Fest? I have definitely been walking around. Everybody's like, "You free the 30th? You doing anything? Nine to ten? Well, I hear there's good bands playing." <laughs> That's Jamie McNear. He's a member of the Chicago-based band Man Wolves. They're playing this year's Wicker Park Fest on Sunday, July 30th, on the center stage. You can find more info about the festival at wickerparkbucktown.com and check out Manwolves at manwolvesband.com. And a quick reminder, if you listen to the Arts Section every Sunday morning, make sure to visit the program's website, theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want. You can also find my contact info. Shoot me an email at gzydic at wdcb.org or find me on Instagram or Twitter with the handle at onairgary. And you are listening to the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. Joining me remotely are the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. Good morning. Good morning, Gary. Good morning, Gary. Long before Elvis, before Chuck Berry, there was Sister Rosetta Tharp, the pioneering musician mixed spirituals and electric guitar, helping pave the way for what we now commonly refer to as rock and roll. 
Tharp's story is one part of Northlight Theater's latest production, Marie and Rosetta. The play highlights Tharp's relationship with protege Marie Knight. Lots of music in this one. Jonathan, we'll start with you. What'd you think? Well, uh, I loved it. And I think Northlight has a surefire hit with Marie and Rosetta. Not because it's a great play, it really isn't, but because it's great entertainment with two powerhouse performers playing real people. As you said, Sister Rosetta Tharp and Marie Knight, who for a lot of people are forgotten legends of 20th century gospel music and popular music. So Marie and Rosetta is kind of a history lesson, too. It's a play with songs, not a, a, a musical in the Broadway sense. And it's set in a black-owned funeral home where the two singers are being put up for the night back when black artists had very few places to stay as they traveled around the country. Uh, we don't know the exact time. It may be the late 1940s when the two artists first met, or it could be the early 1970s when Rosetta Tharp died at the fairly early age of 58. And, you know, it really doesn't matter in George Brandt's play because it really concerns their first meeting in which Tharp tests and challenges Knight while also admiring her talents and personality. It's an older mentor, younger acolyte kind of situation, although in truth, Tharp was only five years older than Knight. Terry, what did you I absolutely agree with you. You know, the story, the setup feels fairly familiar. You know, first time meeting, we're going to learn some things about each other, then we're going to break into song. We've certainly seen that formula used at Black Ensemble Theater and other shows of this nature. But although the structure might be a little formulaic, the performances are anything but. And I think it absolutely helps that we, you know, don't know a whole lot about Marie Knight, certainly, and even not that much about Sister Rosetta Tharp, although she was inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I believe, in 2018. The two-hander is performed by Alexis J. Rostin as Marie and Bethany Thomas as, as Sister Rosetta Tharp, and they could not be more perfectly cast in E.F.A. Butler's production. I just found myself engaged and caring about them deeply, learning something about these women's lives, and getting a sense of the connections between the sacred and the secular that I think is a theme that runs through a lot of black music in America. So many people came out of the gospel tradition. Uh, Aretha Franklin, Whitney Houston, you know. And there's also always been a little bit of that tension about, do you take, you know, do you keep the music in the church? You know, And uh, a figure that's sort of off stage in this story is Mahalia Jackson, or as, as Rosetta sort of, you know, witheringly refers to her, Saint Mahalia, because she would not perform in places like the Cotton Club, where Rosetta performed. There's a great line about and I don't know if it's original with Rosetta or if this is an invention of playwright George Brandt that she's trying to bring a little bit of the church into the club and a little bit of club into the church. So it's about, in some ways, you know, how do you balance that? And, and all the other things that these women had to balance. Being on the road, dealing with the very real threats of Jim Crow as they tour the South. Um, it's worth noting that when we first meet them, they're in this sort of uh, funeral parlor sanctuary setting. Marie is kind of concerned about the possibility of ghosts, and Rosetta has to remind her, well, whatever you think you're going to face inside, it's worse if you sleep on the bus and the white men around here see you sleeping out there alone. That's a very sobering moment. But for the most part, again, I think this is a, this is a play that's about joy and finding joy and finding connection with the music, with each other. And I absolutely agree with you, Jonathan. I think this is a show that, that deserves to be a big hit for Northlight. Yeah, indeed. Both uh, Sister Rosetta Tharp and Marie Knight came out of what were originally conservative church gospel traditions. 
But Sarp, who uh, became a child star and never looked back, by the 1930s, she was adding electric guitar to her music, which she played herself. She was often given the compliment that she played like a man. Uh, she was adding electric guitar and rhythm and blues to her work, uh, to the distaste of some of the traditionalists, which sets up in the play this uh, referred to rivalry with the more operatic Mahalia Jackson. Basically, Marie and Rosetta has Rosetta persuading Marie to open up and cut loose musically, even as they feel each other out personally and share details of their lives, as you said. And it's to playwright Brandt's credit that their conversation is pointed and crisp and often funny and never seems like a list of factoids. So that's part, part, part of the reason why is that Brandt uses a dozen songs to express their personalities, most of them great gospel and R&B genre classics. And the second key to the success of the show is that we have already said that Alexis J. Rostin as Marie and Bethany Thomas as Sister Rosetta, they are flat out sensational. They both have huge voices, they both have personality plus, yet they project a great deal of nuance as well, both in dialogue and in song. Uh, I wanted to call attention to, to a, a marvelous bit of technical staging. Thomas and Rostin pretend to play piano and guitar as they sing, but the tracks are pre-recorded by pianist Morgan E. Stevenson and guitarist Larry Brown, both of whom deserve to be named. Now, it's one thing to hide a piano keyboard from audience view. That's very common, and this show does it. But it's another thing to have an actor pretend to play guitar in full view of the audience, which this show always does. And it's great testimony to the actors and to director E. Faye Butler, who herself is one of our great musical performers. It's great testimony to them that the musical mime is seamless and convincing. Yeah, I just think this is, yeah, I absolutely agree with that. I, in fact, had to kind of look and say, wait, does Bethany really know how to play guitar? Has she learned yep. how to play guitar? Yep. <laughs> you know? yep. these, and these are both performers who have played famous singers in the past. In fact, Bethany Thomas a couple of years ago was in Songs for Nobodies at Northlight, where she was, you know, kind of embodying everyone from Patsy Cline to Edith Piaf. Alexis Rostin has played Billie Holiday in Lady Day at Emerson's Bar and Grill at least a couple of times, to my knowledge, and yet. It was so refreshing to see them do, and those performances, by the way, were not in any way imitative. But here we're getting a sense that they are embodying, and I think that that, you and I would agree, I think, Jonathan, that that's such an important thing when you're playing any kind of character, you know, in a bio-musical, even if they're people we don't know as much about or who are not as, you know, constant earworms or presences for us in the way that perhaps, you know, Holiday might be, that they are, that the we're not worried about do they sound just like that person. It's more about do they feel like that person. Do I feel like I am meeting these people for the first time and I'm immediately sort of wrapped up in their world. And I think that that's really the key here. So, yes, as I said, there might be some sort of formulaic little bits of overly expositional moments here or there. It didn't matter to me. Again, in part because I don't know a lot of these stories. These are not necessarily things that I would have known. I didn't know anything, quite honestly, about Marie Knight and not a whole lot about Sister Rosetta before I went into this show, but also because it's they're building blocks to take us to these higher moments, and those higher moments most definitely come through in the songs, 
Indeed, indeed. Uh, I think we are in agreement. Uh, yeah. By all means. <laughs> by yeah, all I don't means. think I don't think we're 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 dueling over who loved this show most. I think <laughs> is what we're talking about here. <laughs> by all means, make Marie and Rosetta a must see. You're going to know a few of the songs at least, and maybe you'll learn some musical history, and you certainly will thrill to two exciting performances. Northlight Theater's production of Marie and Rosetta continues through August sixth. If you're just joining us, this is the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. I'm talking to the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanal. Moving on to some local theater news, two of the last major leadership vacancies have been filled. Chicago Shakespeare Theater announced British director Edward Hall will be its new artistic director, and longtime arts administrator Kimberly Motes will be its executive director. What do we make of these new hires? Carrie, go ahead. Well, you know, I think they're in a way not completely unexpected. Hall was Edward Hall, who is the son of the long, famous uh, British director, legendary British director Sir Peter Hall. Uh, Twenty years ago, made quite a splash at Chicago Shakespeare with the show Rose Rage, which was the three parts of Henry the Sixth, which are not generally considered part of the Shakespeare greatest hits pantheon. Um, he did this incredibly visceral, literally visceral production because organ meat was you know, sort of <laughs> thrown, you know, exuberantly, I don't know what the, liberally, I don't know what we would call it, around the stage. And that show, I believe, became the first production that Chicago Shakespeare transferred, I think, of an off, off-Broadway to Chicago, I mean, uh, to New York. Um, so in a way, it's, it's, it's a connection that I think has felt uh, forged for a while. And obviously it plays, plays in, in my view, with the way that Barbara Gaines has grown this company from, you know, a small rooftop, you know, uh, troop doing Henry the Fo- Henry Five on the roof of the uh, the, Ro- the Red Lion Pub on Lincoln Avenue, to a company with a real international appeal. Chicago Shakespeare has done that both ways. They've had their world stage series bringing in international productions, directors, and artists, and then they have also performed several times, I think, through RSC and elsewhere around the globe. So in that sense, it makes a lot of sense to me. With Kimberly Motes, when I, I don't know, I didn't know her background as much, but she's been with uh, Children's Theater in Minneapolis, which is a Tony-winning children's theater. Uh, they won the regional Tony several years ago, and her emphasis has been, I think, a lot on family programming, obviously, uh, education and community outreach, and those are also areas that Chicago Shakespeare has been beefing up quite a bit in recent years. In fact, I think their family production this summer, which is just opening, is a is a revival of Dis- uh, it's like a short version of Disney's Beauty and the Beast. So, you know, I I think in that sense, these are not surprising choices, but they certainly seem pretty solid. What's your take on that, Jonathan? Well, I think they're not only solid, I think they're just about as good as one could get among the people who are available. Edward Hall is an internationally known uh, artist, director, and occasionally uh, an adapter and producer. he has worked in commercial theater in New York and in London. He's worked at major regional theaters uh, in the U.K. and in the United States, including at Chicago Shakespeare Theater, as you said, and at the Denver Center, among others. Kimberly Motes is a vastly experienced uh, manager, and it's worth noting it's important that Chicago, that, that the Children's Theater in Minneapolis is not a small company. It is no, no, by no means. <laughs> with over some 400 employees and a $13 million annual budget, Chicago Shakespeare will be uh, a notch up in size from that, but one that she is eminently 
well qualified to take over. So you're getting a powerhouse dynamic duo, and one hopes that they will personally mesh and continue the uh, rhythm and success of Chicago Shakespeare Theater. They are both in their mid-50s, so they are well established. They have Mm -hmm. long and distinguished track records, uh, and it's not likely that they're going to be around for 30 or 40 years, like founding artistic director (laughs) Barbara Barbara Gaines was and Chris Anderson. They may put in 15 years. They may put in 20. That's a very Um, good point, yeah. Yeah. What remains to be seen in terms of Edward Hall's work, now, this, he's, they're both coming on board in, in October, officially. So this season coming up, the 23-24 season, is one, the last one that Barbara Gaines herself will have engineered, and indeed she's going to be back directing one of the productions. Right. So it'll be the next year, 24-25, when we first see the full stamp of this team on the Chicago Shakespeare Theater. Uh, Edward Hall has, uh, you know, a huge network of international artists uh, upon whom he could call. It also is very important to say that he has been as connected with and successful with contemporary work and new work as he has been with the classics. And that's going to be important to the future of Chicago Shakespeare Theater. Remains to be seen whether he will pull around him the coterie of distinguished Chicago-based actors and artists that Barbara Gaines utilized over and over again over the years. That'll be his decision and his choice. But one hopes that he will not ignore the local talent pool. And I think it's interesting to note that, um, I, as you and I have said several times on this show, yeah, there's been such a huge changing of the guard in recent years. I know from talking to Barbara Gaines that you know, she had actually thought that she would step down, you know, at some point during 2020 before the pandemic hit. And she, in fact, stayed on longer because she felt that, you know, that it was important to kind of keep a hand on the wheel while while the theater was trying to come back from that. I mean, there's no it's no secret that regional theaters have been facing a lot of difficulties. Uh, Oregon Shakespeare Festival in particular comes to mind in uh, Ashland, Oregon, uh, one of the premier outdoor regional Shakespeare homes. They've had problems with their financials, they've had wildfires that have affected their programming, and their long their artistic director for the last three years, Mitaki Garrett, uh, stepped down, and there were also some very disturbing stories that she, as a black woman, had faced racist death threats in her role there. So uh, I think a transition like this at Chicago Shakespeare is going to be a bit smoother. And I, I, your point just struck me, and I hadn't thought about this, Jonathan, so I'm glad you brought it up, that Moats and Hall are a little bit Paul and Moats, let's call them that and see if people get them confused with the Philip Lewis Soul Group. Paul <laughs> and Oates are taking over Chicago's Mill. That's a, that's a bold choice. Uh, but Paul and Moats will, I think, um, provide a steadying hand during these uncertain times. You know, the theater has, it's, I'm sure, like most theaters, they face drops in subscription, drops in single ticket sales. This is not, you know, telling tales out of school. This is just the state of the field right now. So it definitely makes sense to bring a people, and including Hall, who apparently has a, made a reputation for himself as a, a, a turnaround artist, if you will, when he ran Hampstead Theater in London, which was apparently on the ropes, and he brought in some new work, new programming, new visions that really helped, you know, bolster and, and uh, preserve that theater. So these are all really heartening developments. Um, as you said, it'll, it, Jonathan, it'll be interesting to see whether uh, Chicago actors are and, and Chicago Shakes has always had some people, you know, dinging them for bringing in out-of-town folks. But, you know, sometimes those out-of-town folks become 
you know, become regulars, too. So it's the tension between being, you know, a homegrown company, as Chicago Shake started out, and being one with the international profile. And it's not always easy to balance, you know, the demands and expectations that come, come with that. I have met Edward Hall a couple of times and seen several of his productions, uh, the first one having been Rose Rage, and uh, the first time I met him. And uh, at that particular time when he was working in Chicago, his father, Sir Peter Hall, an even more distinguished director, also was in Chicago, staging an opera at Lyric Opera of Chicago. And uh, I was at that time affiliated with the other public radio station, and I had father and son up on uh, two consecutive days or maybe a day apart for uh, on-air interviews. So I was able to I was able to ask Sir Peter of the, I was able to ask Edward Hall tell me what have you learned from your father. And I was able to ask Sir Peter Hall, what have you learned from your son? How interesting. It was interesting, yeah. Right. I mean, and Edward Hall does have a reputation of being, you know, I think he had a company, Propeller Theater, which created ensemble-based work that traveled through the U.K. as well as U.S. and several places in Asia. So, yeah, I, I think there's absolutely no uh, no question that the, the credits for both Edward Hall and Kimberly Motes are impeccable. So, well, fr- uh, Frankly, it's going to be exciting to see what they yeah. do in the next few years. Right, right. There's another public radio station in Chicago? (laughs) I'm just kidding. I know it's a rumor. Great stuff from both the dueling critics. Thanks so much. We'll see you next week. You're welcome, Gary. You're welcome. We'll talk with you next week. I'm Gary Zydek. You're tuned into the arts section. Despite life seemingly returning to normal, a number of arts organizations are still figuring out how to navigate the current realities of our post-pandemic pause world. A couple weeks ago, Looking Glass Theater shocked many observers with its announcement that it would be pausing programming for a year to work on solidifying its financial footing. If a prestigious theater company located on Michigan Avenue is struggling, what does that mean for smaller arts organizations? The Chicago-based Donnelly Foundation has championed the local arts community for decades. The grant-making nonprofit currently supports 175 small arts organizations in the Chicago area. Last year, the foundation awarded $2.2 million to local arts organizations. I recently caught up with Donnelly Foundation Program Director Ellen Placey Wadey to learn more about what she's seeing in the Chicago arts landscape. I think to talk about what's going on now, we do have to look back at what happened in, in 2020. So if we, we go back a few years, how did the Donnelly Foundation's approach to helping arts organizations change once the pandemic started? One of the first things we did was reach out to some of our funding colleagues, and we created an emergency funding pool. We tried to get that money out as quickly as possible, so we did that. Some of the other things we did is for the last three years through, you know, both the high points of the pandemic, but also as it was starting to look like we were opening back up again, we expedited all our grants, which means we got them out early. We didn't make folks have to fill out any additional paperwork or anything like that. We just got the money out the door because we knew that if we didn't do that, we would start to see a collapse of the industry. And I remember talking to you in in spring of 2021, and I think the Donnelly Foundation had just conducted the survey to kind of get a sense of how arts organizations were navigating 
now looking back, you know, March of 2021, we still had a, a lot of hurdles still to clear. Uh, we didn't know what was to come, and in a way, we're still kind of figuring things out. It feels like it's a brand new world out there right now. So with a lot of the organizations, one of the things, you know, you, you take it as it comes, and at the beginning, it seemed better that between the emergency funding that went out, the government funding that went out, we did not see a lot of closures of the 180 groups that we support. There were two organizations that announced they were sunsetting, and that was not specifically for economic reasons. But since the beginning of this year, we've had probably about 10 organizations announce their sunsetting. So all the emergency efforts and the funding, they made it through, but some of it was about when to reopen. And it had to do, you know, both with, of course, what was happening with, with covid but it also has to do with audience comfort. And the comfort is not just about being next to other people. People got very comfortable sitting on their couch streaming things. And that still remains a mystery. There are some organizations, it seems like music organizations, are actually doing better. Um, more folks are coming out to concerts and they're seeing their numbers be almost, you know, not up to where they were before, but trending that way. Theaters, it's it's really strange. Like one night a show can be nearly sold out and the next night the theater is half empty. And so audience trends are still super unpredictable. And especially for small organizations, it's true for all, but for small organizations, ticket sales are a big part of their revenue. And so now all of a sudden there's this big hole in their budget. So some organizations are cutting back on the number of shows that they do in a season. Um, they're also thinking a lot about the kind of shows that they do. It's not uncommon for folks to do more familiar work just because audiences kind of know that work and they might be fans of it, so that might entice them out. It's a little harder to do new shows because those are always the shows that you're trying to brave new territory and introduce new names. Folks seem a little more reticent about coming out for that. You know, I think... This summer, it feels like there are some outdoor performances. That was one of the big shifts that happened during the pandemic, and some of that is continuing. Groups are finding ways to perform outside. Uh, I really feel that when we get into the fall, that's, for me at least, going to be the start of being able to see the trend of what it's going to look like moving forward. I still think we've got a good two to three years of rebuilding, but at least I think that'll be a baseline. And so for me, as someone who covers the this world from the outside. Anecdotally, what you're saying rings true because when I talk to concert presenting organizations, I get a common refrain of like, we're seeing good response. It seems like people really missed live music during the pandemic. And when it was brought back, they're coming out uh, to support it. Uh, but then with theater, I'm getting kind of mixed responses. And, and like you said, it can be like a night to night thing. I have the uh, the dueling critics on and a lot of times they're going to review a show on opening night so it's a full house but uh, I know later in runs things can be a struggle and one example of something that just shook me was what's going on at Looking Glass Theater and this isn't even this wouldn't be considered a small arts organization it's a Tony award-winning operation a few weeks ago it announces that it's pausing all programming for a year and there's lots of layoffs and so Right away, I'm thinking if this is happening at Looking Glass, then what's going on at some of the, the lesser-known theaters? Yeah, I mean, with smaller theaters, they have less infrastructure, so it's not necessarily like a big layoff like you'll see at Looking Glass. But, yeah, it's across the industry at all levels. 
I think one of the things that, you know, when a place like Looking Glass or some of the other big theaters make announcements about some of the pressures and struggles that they're feeling, that gets on people's radar. But, you know, with small theaters, small dance companies, small music organizations, uh, visual arts organizations, that's, you know, that's like the, the feed you know, it's the feeding ground for these larger organizations. So if the small organizations don't make it, talent-wise, it's going to have a huge impact through the whole ecosystem. So that's why, even though the names might not be as familiar, it's just as important to support them, because that's where folks get their, you know, folks don't debut on the Looking Glass Theater stage too often, um, or on the Goodman stage, they've usually earned their chops at a lot of the small arts organizations that we support. And that's um, why they're so important. People might think, well, you know, so storefront theater, sunsets, you know, that doesn't have a huge impact. It does. It's not only for the talent of the ecosystem, the artistic ecosystem. It's also, they're all built into the fabric of neighborhoods. You know, um, they're the reason that sometimes restaurants will then come into the community because they know there's an audience that's going to be there to see art or a coffee shop mm-hmm. or a bar. Um, they bring people into the community in the evening. So that ha- usually has an impact of making streets safer. Um, they do after school programming. So that fills a need for, you know, what happens with students in those kind of hours that everybody worries about between after school and, and when folks get home, you know, parents get home from work. So smaller arts organizations have a huge role in the community, though, you know, I always think of them, they're like the mom and pop shop. Um, you don't necessarily think about them all the time. They're not necessarily like the Michelin star restaurant, but it's the local restaurant that if it goes away, you feel like you've really lost something. It's it's part of the fabric of the community. And that's one of the reasons why we're working so hard to try and keep them vital and viable. If you're just tuning in, I'm Gary Zydek. You're listening to the Arts Section on WDCB. I'm chatting with the Donnelly Foundation's Ellen Placey Wadey about some of the challenges arts organizations are still facing over a year after most in-person events have returned. One of the things that's getting more attention in the arts landscape in recent years is pay equity. It came up with the news about Looking Glass. The company noted that it wanted to make sure it was paying a fair wage to its employees if it was going to continue. And so that's an issue then some of these smaller arts organizations, I'd imagine, are grappling with too. For sure. And actually, that's why some have chosen to sunset. It They didn't actually get to a point where... They were under economic pressure, but they looked at the difference between where they wanted to be in terms of pay and where they were at in terms of income, and they saw that they couldn't bridge the gap, not in what they felt was a reasonable or an ethical amount of time. So they decided to sunset. You know, the myth of the starving artist, I wish that myth would go away. You know, even artists, when you say starving, that's true. Like, uh, you know, you still have to buy groceries, still got to pay your rent. It'd be nice if you had health insurance. And again, when everything shut down, it became harshly visible of what a thin network there was to support support creative people in this world. And so, you know, small arts orgs are trying to figure out how do we get there in terms of paying everybody better. Not only, you know, the talent that you see on the stage, but there's designers, there's costume designers, there's lighting designers, there's the arts administration staff that, you know, keeps the organization running in terms of cultivating donors and writing grants and doing things like that. And you can't get there overnight. 
it's this is a long-term problem to solve. There are a number of us who are looking at it very seriously. Some of my funding colleagues and I actually have a working group that we've started to look at this and to see what are the sequential steps that hopefully we can help. And along with the nonprofit organizations, we always work in partnership with them. What are the steps we need to do to get to better pay, more fair pay, and paying folks for the amount of time they actually work. You know, there's a lot of rehearsal time. There's a lot of extra hours that oftentimes artists in the past have not gotten paid for. Right. And then I wanted to come back to something you referenced as far as programming, then do some of these external factors. Are you seeing it then affect programming decisions? Is now the time to take bigger risks to try to draw in a new audience or companies having to play it safer than even pre-pandemic? It's kind of the question for the Sphinx, right? It's uh, what do we do if you're a company that's really known for doing new work? I think you want to be true to who you are. In the same vein, there is something I heard something recently, a conversation that was saying that it feels like uh, what happened with the arts after World War II. And if you think about it, we have been through a battle, a big battle. It's a different kind of battle. And people wanted things that made them feel good, you know, that made them happy. I think that's one of the reasons why music might be bouncing back quicker. It has that immediacy to it. I think that companies want to be, again, true to who they are. But I think they're also thinking about their audiences. Like, should we be doing, these were very serious times with COVID, um, with the racial reckoning that was happening. It was a serious world out there. And, you know, artists are always interested in the contemporary moment. So there was a lot of work that was coming out about that. I think now we're also seeing work that everybody's kind of dropping their shoulders a little bit, trying to get back into a regular routine. We'll see some lighter things as well. But audiences are really the big question mark right now. It's the thing that everybody's trying to, to figure out. They want to do work that engages with people. It's the only reason you do live work is because you want an audience and you want to have that kind of uh, intellectual and emotional conversation with them through the work. Um, but in the same vein, you want to be sure that you're presenting work that you're proud of and that you think um, expresses the values and ideas that you're interested in. So it's, it's, it's a mix right now. And then you referenced you're really going to be looking at the fall. What are some of the, the specific things you're going to be keeping an eye on? Well, I think one of the things is there are some companies, you know, out of that big portfolio that we have, there are some companies we just haven't heard much from. And, you know, they've said we're regrouping. We're trying to figure out. Uh, there were a lot of organizations that uh, voluntarily let go of their spaces if they were in long-term leases. Um, just because that was an expense that if they could not have to bear that at the time, they let it go. So there's a lot of folks who are looking for producing spaces right now that are kind of tight. I think we'll see how many of those groups that have been quiet come out of dormancy. I think we'll also see the one thing about Chicago that's different than other markets is when it's nice outside, everybody wants to go outside because you know what it's like in February and you know you're not going to want to go outside so much then. So I think when we get back to September, October, we'll start to see, you know, was it just a period of time where there was some trepidation about people coming back into proximity to each other in, let's say, 2022, kind of started to open up in 23. Summer came, everybody wanted to go outside when it wasn't raining or flooding or all of the things we've been experiencing lately. Well, we start to get back to something that feels like a rhythm in the fall. I do think we'll probably see organizations that are producing 
Again, two shows instead of three, being a little bit more cautious in their productions. They might not have a show up. Usually the season starts September or October, might start a little bit later. I think we'll probably see a lot of folks doing stuff around the holidays because it's always a good production time of the year. So it's trying to figure out, like, how does the calendar work? What are the kind of shows that people want to see? How, how big are our audiences? Do we have a space that we can produce that in? There's just lots and lots of question marks still. There was some concern that there might be a talent drain. Obviously, the pandemic wreaked havoc. And any evidence that some artists just left? Or sure, for sure. I mean, again, artists live on a, a shoestring, and that's this is for folks who see art as their professional career. The folks who are really committing themselves to it. Um, what they're going to do is put all their energies into that work. Many of them have had tons of training, whether it's through community efforts or going to school. They've invested a lot in it, and then they find other ways to kind of find jobs that help them make money to keep things going. When the pandemic hit and everything shut down, a certain number, Chicago is a mecca for the Midwest. We pull from pretty much all of the major schools that have strong art programs in the Midwest. A number of them went home. What I'm seeing, though, is it's there. some are not coming back. But I've been out seeing shows on the regular again for the last three or four months, seeing a lot of new talent on the stage, new folks popping up. And that's what happens with the arts. It always regenerates itself. So, you know, might not see the same faces, but in terms of a talent drain, I, I don't think there's any lack of talent in the area. It just might look a little different mm -hmm. than it did before. I wanted to to wrap up with maybe a reason for optimism or something that's keeping your spirits up as we look like to the long term? You know, the arts, the thing I love about the arts and artists is they always think themselves through in a new way forward. Um, whatever the challenges might be, whatever um, obstacles might come in their way, that's, that's kind of the genesis of art, right? You don't know the answer moving forward. You create something, you try it, and you keep moving forward. I think collectively as a society, we're figuring out what it means to be in this um, post-pause moment. I'm always going to place my bet on artists and arts organizations. I just hope folks will continue to support them. They are the voices of our time, and they are jewels and we really want to make sure that we there's a reason why there are museums to art and it's because it's a record of who we are Bellin, thanks so much for coming by to talk with me thank you appreciate it that was ellen placey wadey she's the program director of chicago artistic vitality and collections for the gaylord and dorothy donnelly foundation the deadline to apply for the Foundation's latest round of arts organization grants is Friday, July 28th. You can learn more about the grants and the organization's overall efforts at gddf.org. You're listening to the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. The loveliness of Paris Seems somehow sadly gay The glory that was wrong Legendary vocalist Tony Bennett died this past Friday. His publicist, Sylvia Weiner, confirmed the death. Bennett passed away in his hometown of New York. There was no specific cause, but Bennett hadn't been diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease in 2016. 
the last of a generation of singers connected to a golden age of vocalists. Bennett often said his lifelong ambition was to create a hit catalog rather than hit records. Over the course of a 75-plus year career, he released more than 70 albums, won 19 competitive Grammys, and captured the admiration of millions of fans all over the world. Come on along and listen to the lullaby of Broadway. The hip hooray and ballyhoo, the lullaby of Broadway. The rumble of a subway train, the rattle of a taxi. The daffodils who entertain the Angelos and Maxis. When a Broadway baby. Born Anthony Dominic Benedetto on August 3rd, 1926, the renowned singer was performing well into his 90s, releasing a second duets album with Lady Gaga in 2021. And of course, many Chicago area fans will remember his performances at Ravinia Fondly. Those concerts became an annual tradition. I caught up with celebrated Chicago-based jazz vocalist Paul Marinaro to talk about what made Bennett so special. What's the first thing that pops in your head when the name Tony Bennett comes up? It sounds cliche, but longevity. Um, he was he was able to connect as a communicator uh, with lyrics as a storyteller, you know, largely with the Great American Songbook throughout so many different decades uh, when that was not popular, when that was, you know, not, certainly not mainstream. And he was able to find ways to connect that I don't believe any other artist of that genre, of that era, has been able to do. So that, that simple communication of a lyric, you know, he, and he crossed that bridge between jazz and pop. He's, he's firmly embraced by the jazz folks, yet... His, his sense of delivery of the lyric, he, he really clung fairly close to uh, the melody as the composer intended it. Yet that seemed to uh, be the, the, the standing test to have the most longevity and, and to keep his in, instrument in such shape for as long as he did. I don't know that we have uh, another artist that we could immediately jump to that has achieved the same. And you just touched on it there, but when you... You think about the the pantheon of, of great vocalists, whether it's pop or, or jazz. Is it then the way he was able to interpret lyrics and, and communicate lyrics? Is that, in your opinion, what sets him apart? I do. I think that the the voice itself is so instantly recognizable. But beyond that, I think it is the ability to communicate, um, which is what those great lyricists always intended. But his ability to communicate uh, transcended different genres and many many generations. Uh, and it's that simple, straightforward, but wholly meaningful interpretive skills of those lyrics and, and how to shape a melody and phrasing like that. I don't know that we've seen that before. So he truly was, you know, the last of, of that generation. Uh, you know, he certainly began in the golden age to find and, and to continue to find success in a modern market. And, and without having to alter uh, his choice of material or, or his approach, it really has largely stayed the same. I was thinking about that, and you mentioned the longevity. I mean, when his career starts, we could say late 40s after he gets out of the, the military, and then he's still making records up until 2021. I don't want to overlook or disrespect any vocalists that, that might have overlapped, but it does feel like Bennett was this bridge from that golden age uh, to contemporary times. You know, His longevity stretched so long. There was this connection to this gone-by era, it feels like he was really the, the last of a, a certain generation. 
Absolutely. And again, you know, others have lasted, but they were certainly not in the, the public awareness as much as he was. I think it was a brilliant move on his son's part uh, when he embraced MTV. You know, that hadn't been done before, but it brought that style, that sense of cool, relaxed, simple delivery, communicative style that he had. It brought it to a, a much gener younger generation than would have ever heard it otherwise. That, I think, was a brilliant move because it, it gave him that last, that last extension on his career, which arguably may have been his greatest period of output, his most prolific. You know, we, we forget that during the 70s, he largely went the way of many, many other artists. He did those great albums with, with Bill Evans, but only aficionados would have heard them, would have found them. Uh, he struggled quite a bit through the 70s and even into much of the 80s. It really wasn't until he found that um, brilliant marketing stroke of luck that his son came up with with MTV, the unplugged thing that kind of brought him back and and made even probably older fans that had may have been fans of his in the 50s and 60s take note that, oh, he's still out there and he sounds wonderful. And his voice really just deepened um, his interpretive skills, I think, got uh, even better as he aged, which is, it's wonderful that we had the opportunity to hear him that way, because had he faded into obscurity, like so many great artists do, we only have what, what is considered their prime recordings, you know, when they're young and vital and vibrant and all of that. In jazz and in that whatever genre you would call Tony Bennett, whether it's jazz, pop, or some amalgamation of both, it's wonderful that we got to hear the wisdom of years take shape in, in his vocal, in just his voice and his interpretive skills. Um, personally, I much prefer Tony Bennett's later, later work uh, to his early work, there's some wonderful early stuff, but he really was, I think, his 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 skills and in, as an interpreter um, really deepened as he aged, uh, even up until very recently. That was vocalist Paul Marinaro. Tony Bennett was named a Kennedy Center honoree in 2005 and an NEA Jazz Master in 2006. He sold more than 50 million records over the course of his seven and a half decade career. He survived by his wife Susan, daughters Joanna and Antonia, sons Danny and Day, and nine grandchildren. Tony Bennett was 96 years old when he passed away on Friday. He'll be missed. And that's going to wrap up this edition of the Arts Section. But remember, you can always find more arts and culture online by visiting the program's website, theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the show. My name is Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning at 8 a.m. right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM for another edition of the Arts Section. Until then, I hope you have a great week. Thanks for listening. Here's one of my favorite Bennett tunes. Strife and upheaval, but I'm certain, honey, that life would be sunny.